Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning. Come with me to my study. When I was still on staff at Rexdale Alliance Church, Early one morning, I just finished my prayer time and was getting ready to write my sermon for that weekend. It was a Thursday morning, and Thursdays are the days I block off and set aside for that crucial task of getting the manuscript ready for Sunday. Also, I just got a call from the executive pastor saying, can you please get the study guide done before noon today? So there's a bit of additional work that needed to be done in the same time slot. Uh, being a structured kind of individual, I just plan my weeks carefully and protect those days because I do pretty well the same thing on a regular basis. And the phone rang. It was my wife. Gideon, our youngest grandson, was still not of school age yet. And on Thursday mornings, Sham would usually look after him to give Jen a break. Anyway, she had forgotten to get the car seat from Jen. And so she said, can you please come over for 10 minutes while I go borrow a car seat and then I can do some errands as well. Well, I, I was irritated because it was Thursday morning. It was a day I had set aside and she knew that. And so obviously my irritation must have shown through in my reaction because she said, well, do what you have to do. Well, that didn't help at all because not only did it add to my irritation, it also showed up the self-centeredness and the selfishness out of which my initial reaction had come. Besides, I was also struggling with the fact that 10 minutes for her usually meant 30 to 40 minutes. Anyway, I went across irritated, not angry, but definitely irritated. Things worked out fine. I had a wonderful 30 minutes with my grandson. Remember, it was 30 minutes and not 10 minutes. Now, I'm not alone. All of us can relate to a myriad of life experiences where somebody violates one of our rights, whether it's a legitimate expectation or real or illegitimate one, uh, our rights are violated. Uh, Sometimes it's our dignity rights. Someone will make a comment that puts us down in public uh, or embarrasses us with a challenge. Uh, Not too long ago, in fact, last week, I think my wife was talking to somebody from another church and she talked about how on this last Good Friday, they happened to have to leave their seats to go down to the front for communion. So she was in her row waiting for the people in front to clear up politely when someone behind her said, well, are you going to join the line or not? (laughs) Well, she just was furious at that time. So... Dignity rights are violated. Sometimes they are violated by omission, not by doing something. Uh, Just recently, again, I heard about someone who's a member of an extended family, and one individual had gone through an important surgical procedure, and everybody else in the family was kept up to date, but she was left out. Well, that's a violation, or at least sense as a violation of your dignity rights. Then maybe you've taken a defective product that you bought back to the consumer uh, customer service desk, only to be pointed out the fine print that you missed. And that's a legitimate violation of your legal rights. Perhaps you, like me, had someone who violated your property rights. I remember my first house in Toronto was a a semi-detached home, and the guy who shared the driveway with me regularly parked his cars and his vans, infringing well over an hour half, causing no end of discomfort. That was an infringement of my property rights. And then sometimes there's a violation of personal rights, especially when someone in power makes a demand upon you. Perhaps a boss who not only asks you to do the work that you're expected to, but a favor every now and then. 
and he has that power over you and so he can ask that. These are probably four of the more common experiences that we've had. And our usual response when rights are violated is anger. It goes all the way from the kind of mild irritation that I felt on that Thursday morning all the way through to explosive anger. This gal who was uh, heading up for communion and was asked, why aren't you going to join the line or not? Confessed to seething anger that ruined her entire day after that. Now, all relationships provide a context in which this can happen. But they again probably find their most sustained expression within intimate relationships and especially marriage. As we learned last week when John Piper observed that all sins of the soul are ultimately relational sin and find their worst expression within marriage. Marriage is tailor-made for a violation of rights on a regular basis. Why do I say that? Many years ago, I remember hearing a story about a photographer who was uh, assigned by his national magazine that he worked for to take some photographs of uh, a forest fire that was burning nearby. And they told him a plane would be waiting for him. So he dashed into the airport nearby. Yeah, sure enough, found a plane all warmed up, the pilot in the cockpit. So he threw his gear in the back seat, jumped in, and the pilot took off somewhat nervously and erratically flying into the wind. And the photographer said to him, now, go to the top end of that fire, turn around and make a couple of low passes over it. And the pilot turns to him and said, what for? He said, well, I'm a photographer. I take photographs and I need to photograph that. He said, you mean you're not my flight instructor? You can just imagine the reaction of those two people locked into this plane, each one with a set of expectations that were completely unfounded. And I can only just imagine the anger. The photographer must have been infuriated at whoever back home in the administrative department did not make sure that a legitimate pilot was sitting there. And as for our, for our young neophyte pilot, he was absolutely furious that his flight instructor had allowed this to happen. It's a perfect metaphor for marriage. As we've been learning, marriage is designed by God to be a permanent commitment. So you're in, you're locked, and you come in with a set of expectations. Some you're aware of, some you're not even aware of. Mostly unstated. And then you discover to your chagrin that your spouse, far from meeting your expectations, has an own set of expectations that he or she wants you to meet. That's so lots of opportunities for anger. That's what I want to talk about today as we conclude this three-part series on marriage. And if you're single, as I said, don't tune me out. All relationships have this potential. And the more intimate the relationship, the more the potential for anger. Now, before I proceed, I need to make one observation. Some of you are sitting here who have probably been wounded deeply. It hasn't been just the infringement of the kind of rights that I've used in my example, but perhaps you've been abused, physically abused, maybe verbally abused, even sexually. Maybe within marriage you've been repeatedly betrayed, trust has been betrayed and violated. That kind of repeated violations of core rights is wrong and produces anger that is completely legitimate. And so there's a danger that I might fail to meet your expectations today. But I need you to know that one sermon can't even begin to address those kinds of issues. My objective in this series is far, far more modest. We are building biblical foundations for marriage, including today's talk. Some of you will need more than this, much more than one sermon. You'll need professional counseling. You'll need the help of a supportive community. But when all of that is done, 
You need to come back to these basics again because this is a problem even healthy marriages have. And above all, remember, wherever you are, don't resign yourself to the status quo. Our entire goal in all of this series is for the expectation of new life in Christ to come into us. That Jesus will indeed instruct our minds today. He will inflame our hearts. He will open our eyes to see him better. And he will incline our wills to action. That is the expectation that blows that fresh wind of vitality into the stale air of resignation. Now all of us know that uncontrolled expression of anger, taking a strip off the person who's violated our rights and letting them have a piece of our mind is not right. But others have perhaps grown up in a, in a culture, even a Christian culture, where you've been told that anger is bad, anger is wrong, Christians shouldn't be angry. And so you either deny the anger or you suppress it. But what happens is that eventually it explodes. Either it explodes outwards into the very explosive expression that you're avoiding, or it can be turned inward and depression and other kinds of problems result. What then is the fundamental biblical commandment when it comes to anger? It's actually mentioned once in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament. In Psalm 4 it says, Be angry and do not sin. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, says the same thing. Be angry and do not sin. The commandment is not to be not angry. It says, be angry, but don't sin in the way in which you're angry. That's the basic commandment. And really it is related to the development of a character quality that the Bible calls meekness. Jesus introduced this very early in the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably his best known teaching. In the very first of the four biographies of Jesus written by Matthew, in the first record of his public teaching, he gets into this. They're called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the humility we talked about last week. Blessed are they that mourn. We talked about repentance last week. And now this one builds upon that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is this thing called meekness? Or in many of your Bibles it is translated gentleness. There are probably three strands that taken together give us an understanding of what meekness is all about. First of all, it was used of uh, wild animals that had been domesticated to the point where they could accept orders from their human bosses. And therefore, meekness then was not weakness, but meekness was actually power under control. Specifically, it was the power to control anger. The word meekness was a very critical term in Greek ethics. Uh, virtue was defined as a balance between two extremes so that the virtue of courage was a balance between cowardice on the one hand and recklessness on the other hand. And Aristotle defined anger as a balance between uncontrolled explosive anger and the inability to be angry at all. And he said something like this in 384 BC. He said, uh, anybody can be angry, that's easy. But, he says, to be angry with the right person and to the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that's not so easy. That was a second strand or definition of meekness. It builds on the first one. It's power under control, power especially to control anger. So they are angry with the right person for the right reason in the right way for the right amount of time. A third strand builds upon this. Let me go back to Jesus' Beatitudes. The first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's an acknowledgement that there's nothing, uh, we have no power in ourselves. We have nothing to be proud of. The second Beatitude says, blessed are they that mourn. We have much to be sorry about, we have much to repent of. Now, imagine for a moment, you have just taken some time alone with God, 
You've been reflecting upon some things in your life and you've been led to the point where you have freely acknowledged to God, God, I have nothing to be proud of. <laughs> in fact, I have a lot of things that are not right with me. You kind of express the first two Beatitudes. Now, let's say you get up from that encounter with God and you move into your places of work or whatever and immediately somebody in that interaction with you confirms those two things about you. Uh, you're right. You have nothing much to be proud about and there's a lot you have that you need to confess. What do you feel like doing to that person? You get angry, right? But you've just finished telling God those two things about yourself. That's where the third beatitude comes in. Meekness then in this case is a right opinion of yourself before God that expresses itself in horizontal relationships with people. So put those three together and you get a comprehensive understanding of meekness. Meekness is not weakness but power under control. It is the power to control anger so that you're angry with the right person for the right reason for the right amount of time. And one of the times when you need this exercise, this is when you yourself are criticized in some way. That's, that's the central idea of meekness. And that is the character quality that we need to develop if we're going to obey the fundamental commandment of being angry but not sinning. Now, next question. What does this meekness look like in practice? Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same chapter in which he introduces the beatitude, blessed are the meek, goes on to say this. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go to one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What's he talking about? Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. So to build a bridge from there to where we are today, let's look at what kind of rights are involved in each of these situations that Jesus is addressing. Uh, first one, the slap in the face. This has nothing to do with bullying, okay? So this is not a 2,000-year-old treatise on how to bully and how to deal with bullies and all that stuff. A slap in the face was an offense to a person's dignity. Just yesterday in my Bible reading, I was reading how Jesus trial. He was slapped in the face. The Apostle Paul was once slapped. And the soldiers in making fun of Jesus would hit him in the face. It was an offense to your dignity rights. Your dignity as a person. Jesus says, don't retaliate. That was the whole point. The turning the other cheek, as I said, is not again a, a recipe on how to deal with bullies. It says, when your dignity rights are violated, just let it pass by. Look away. Don't retaliate. Then comes the issue of suing with a tunic and a cloak. What's that all about? Scholars tell us that in those days you could sue a man or a woman for their undergarment to their tunic, but you could not sue somebody for a cloak. That was an outer garment that protected them from the vagaries of the weather. In fact, there's an Old Testament legislation that said if you, someone gave you their cloak as a pledge, you have to give it back to them before the day is over. It was something that God took very seriously. So basically, this is an infringement of your legal rights. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying here is, give them more. If they want to sue you for the so give them the what they cannot sue you as well. This is the principle of giving people more than they deserve and they're asking for. Uh, think of a potential uh, conflict situation, for example, where a family, siblings, are uh, dealing with an inheritance after parents have passed away. If you, as a follower of Jesus, are being taken advantage of by others, maybe someone more forcible, more pushy, what he's saying is don't fight for it. Actually, let them have more than is even their right. 
Because what Jesus is recognizing here, asking us to recognize here, is that while we can be angry when someone takes away what we think is ours, while we can even be angry and hostile if we only get what we deserve, you cannot remain angry when you have given more than you have to give. The third one is exactly the same. What's all this about walking a second mile? In those days, a Roman soldier could stop any Jew, put his backpack onto him, no matter how heavy it was, and make him walk one mile. So this is a violation of personal rights because of someone who's in power. And what does Jesus say? He says, when they don't, not only do you walk that first mile, when you finish that first mile, tell them, can I walk another mile? So in other words, if that Thursday morning Jesus had been there with me when Sham called, he would have said, go over and watch your grandson. And then when your wife comes back, ask her, is there anything else you would like her to do? Actually, he was there. I just wasn't listening to him. But that's again the same principle. When you voluntarily give more than is required, you cannot maintain anger. And then the fourth one, of course, is, a, is about property rights. You know, give to the person who will uh, ask you. Ask you. Give to the person or lend to the person who's going to borrow from you. Our tendency is to say, look, I worked hard for it. Why don't you go get a job? Stop begging. Go find a job. Or this is the 15th time you've borrowed my camera. Isn't it about time that you bought a camera of your own? Jesus says, no, give and lend. So you put them together. This is it. These are the four things that Jesus is talking about that are expressions of our dignity rights. Uh, are, 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 sorry, are an expression of our meekness when our rights are violated. When our dignity rights are violated, Take the insult without retaliation. When our legal rights are violated, give more than you legally theirs. Personal rights are violated, offer to do more than they asked. Property rights are violated, give and lend. Exactly the four kinds of rights that were involved in, those, in my opening hypothetical but realistic situations. 2,000 years, nothing has changed. The penetrative relevance of Jesus' life words is amazing. Now, I can hear some objections. Just a minute, just a minute, you say. Shouldn't these people be confronted at some time? What they're doing is wrong. They shouldn't be violating rights like this. And are we not continuing to enable this kind of behavior by giving away like this that you're talking about, by turning the other cheek, walking the second mile? That's going to make them do it even more to other people. That's not really helping them, is it? All those things are true. But here's the issue. Our tendency is to rush to that confrontive teaching end of the spectrum much too fast and therefore we do not allow God to do his work in us, to transform us into the person of Jesus, which is his real agenda. Let me give you a couple of examples as to what might happen if we didn't rush. When we first moved into Rexdale after I quit my job at Atomic Energy of Canada, uh, Sheila and Vijay went to public school nearby. She was about eight, I think she may have been in grade four. Uh, and there was this guy, his name was Glenn, I still remember Glenn. He didn't like, he would uh, kick her every now and then from the desk behind. Uh, not in any way to leave a mark on her body, anything like that. And so she would come and talk to us about it. Now this was near the end of term. And so we just decided to do nothing and we said, okay, Annie, we're going to pray every day. And so every day during the summer holidays, we prayed for Glenn. It's unbelievable what happened in September when he went back. Not only had Glenn completely changed, he actually became her protector on the field. Now, as I said again, this is not a recipe on how to deal with bullies. That's not what we're talking about. This is an illustration of the kind of work that God can do if we don't rush into the intervention end and are actually not retaliating, actually turning the other cheek in this case. Uh, 
Like, give me a second example, this one, a violation of property rights. Again, when Sham and I first started worshiping at Rexdale Lions Church, uh, we were in a Bible study with three other couples. It was long before small groups and home groups and all that stuff were ever the buzzword in churches. We were just four couples that happened to start a Bible study together. And we were studying, guess what, the Sermon on the Mount. Until one day, uh, one of the ladies in the, in, in the group asked the ad group to advise her, what should I do? I have this neighbor, she said. This neighbor has found out that I do my vacuuming every Monday nights. So she comes on Monday nights and borrows my vacuum cleaner and keeps it all week long and returns it the following Sunday night so that I can do my vacuum again. What should I do? So we'd been studying these Beatitudes at that time. And so here was the consensus of the group. They said, you know what? I think you need to keep giving. Jesus would want you to keep on giving that vacuum cleaner to her until you reach the point where you are no longer angry or upset that your rights are being violated. Until you're only caring about her welfare, then you can say no and teach her. So, and we prayed for her. Do you know how long it took? Nine months. For nine more months, every week, she surrendered her vacuum cleaner for six days to the neighborhood until one day, at the ninth month or so, she came and told us as a group, she said, I think I'm ready right now. And so when the neighbor came over and said, uh, asked her for the vacuum cleaner, she said, you know what, I'd be happy to give it to you, but I'm not going to. And here's why. The neighbor went and bought her own vacuum cleaner at that point. But the point is, if Julie, our friend, had rushed in at that point to confront her, she would have missed this amazing work that God was doing in her life. So yes, we do need to confront. Yes, there is a time. Stop enabling. But let's not rush it. All right. We know what the character quality means is meekness. We know what it looks like in practice when rights are violated. We know the importance of not rushing in to confront. Here comes the real challenge now. How are we going to pull this off? Go back again to the same verse that we've talked about so many times before in this series. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There it is, that same word translated meekness. I am meek and lowly in heart. That's the word humility we looked at last week. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is right. All that we said last week about coming to Jesus to learn humility, that lowliness of mind that we talked about was so important in marriage, now applies to meekness. He's the one who comes to teach us meekness. And again, notice what he says here. Learn from me, for I am. Jesus teaches us who he is. And he demonstrated this definition of meekness perfectly. Remember one of the dimensions of meekness was uh, the power to be angry with the right person for the right reason, for the right amount of time? Well, Jesus displayed uh, that for us perfectly. When was he furious? When was he so furious that his disciples said, my goodness, anger is consuming Jesus. <laughs> that was when he cleansed the temple. You know what was happening there? The people had made the outer court of the temple a marketplace, buying and selling sacrificial animals. No, no, Jesus just got in there, overturned the tables of the money changers, sent all that money crashing to the ground, made a whip of cord, drove out all those sacrificial animals, and he scolded them. He says, get out of my, this place. You've changed my father's house, which shall be a house of prayer for the nations into a den of thieves. Now, why was he so angry? I don't think it was just for the 
commercialism and the racketeering that was going on and the system of kickbacks that had been engineered so that money would come back into the pockets of the chief priests and the Pharisees. While all of that was true, the real issue was that the outer court of the Gentiles was the only place where God-fearing non-Jews could come to worship Yahweh. So instead of fulfilling their God-given call to bless the nations of the world and allow this temple to be a house of prayer for the nations, they had made it into a place of thievery and made it impossible for Gentiles to seek God. And Jesus was furious with that. But just a few days later, just a few days later, when his own honor was at stake, when they slapped him, when they spit on him, he kept his mouth shut. He did not open his mouth. He turned the other cheek. He was angry with the right people. He was angry for the right reason. But he was angry for the right amount of time, a few days, because he went to the cross for those same people who violated his rights so severely. And you know, every single one of those four rights we talked about, Jesus was violated. He knew what dignity rights was like to be offended because they slapped him. They mocked him. They stripped him of his clothing. They hung him up. They spat upon him. They made a mockery of a crown of thorns upon him and put a purple robe on him and bent in false homage. They blindfolded him, hit him on his face, said, okay, come on now, you prophesy. And they mocked him on the cross. You were going to save the whole world. You can't even save yourself. He knew the violation of dignity rights. He also knew the violation of legal rights. One scholar said there were 42 different provisions of Jewish trial law that were all broken, like having hastily con called conferences in the middle of the night, for example. So he knew the violation of legal rights. He certainly knew the constant violation of personal rights. Whenever he would go alone to be by himself, the crowds were coming running after him. And there was so much in need. Jesus was so compassionate. He would set aside that right for quiet and he would minister to them. And as for property rights, he owned nothing anyway except the one cloak that he had. And at the foot of the cross, people were gambling for that. You see, he knew the violation of every single one of those rights that we talked about to a far greater degree than we did. And yet he walked in meekness. So no wonder he can teach us. Jesus teaches us what Jesus has learned. Remember, and he learned this as man. That's what we've been learning throughout. This wasn't God doing something spectacular. This was a man in dependence upon God learning to live as all human beings were supposed to. That is why you and I can live. He was the firstborn of a whole new humanity. And so you and I have hope that in him we can actually pull this thing off. We can begin progressively to become meek people when our rights are violated, especially within those relationships where that likelihood is at a maximum. So, come to him. Be angry in his presence. That's the command, right? Be angry. That's the one safe place where you can let it all hang out. Another person in the Bible was an amazing illustration of meekness with Moses. In fact, he's called the meekest man in all the earth. And the people that he was leading were constantly violating his rights. But if you read, you will find how many times when Moses was criticized, before the people, he never exploded. But alone with God, oh God, you know, why have you brought me to lead these people? He let out all his emotions. It's okay. Be angry. It's important to express those emotions because, you know, if we do not express them, you know what happens. It gets it internalized. In God's presence, we're safe to express our anger. By the way, it's interesting that the Psalms, and for those of you not familiar with the Bible, is a collection of 150 Hebrew songs and poems that were basically praise. It would be like their praise book, if you will. And in that, 
there's a lot of talk about enemies. In fact, after God, the second most important subject in the Psalms is the enemies. Why has God put all of that in there? Because he has given us a legitimate avenue in which to be able to express the longing of our heart, including the anger that we feel. So that's the first thing to do. Learn to be angry in the presence of God. The ugliest emotions can be expressed to him. And then secondly, confess your sinful anger. You express your legitimate anger, but you also confess your sinful anger. Remember, blessed are they who mourn. We don't pull this off well. We make many, many mistakes. Short-lived or not. And so it's important to name the ways in which we have not responded appropriately when any one of these rights have been violated by our spouse. Thirdly, you can ask him to meet those rights that a spouse didn't meet. In my case, for example, on that morning, if I had been sane enough and thinking like Jesus, not only would I have gone there gladly, I would have been expecting God to make up for that lost time. And on those times when I have been sane, He has shown Himself to be the master of time. We, we can dare to trust Him to meet the needs that our spouse has not met or somebody else hasn't met in terms of our rights. And then fourthly, we can ask him for grace. Grace to be able to do this the next time. Grace to be taught as another human being to live like he did as a man. Now, a couple of questions with that we have finished. Why, why bother you? Myself? Why bother with all this? <laughs> so much easier just to explore, right? Ah, and then we can recover. So why, why make a big deal of all this? Nothing wrong. It's just, just human to explode. Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First, a negative and a positive one. Here's the negative reason. The Apostle Paul, in the same verse where he writes about be angry and don't sin, he goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Some verses translate that as foothold. You want to know what a foothold is? Uh, think of the Air Force bases that North America has overseas. In, in, in the NATO allied countries. What are these bases for? They get you closer to where the enemy is, right? And from those footholds, from those base camps, as you will, you're able to view the enemies a lot closer. You understand their tactics. You find out when they're attacking. And you launch your counterattacks from there. That's the idea behind this foothold or an opportunity. What inappropriate anger or anger inappropriately dealt with does is to give the enemy Satan a base of operations right close to us. So within marriage, if we don't do this, we're inviting him to come in and as one man put it, giving him a seat at our table, as it were. From where he's so much better able to launch his strategic tactics against us. Anger gives the enemy that, inappropriate anger gives the enemy that kind of a foothold. And you know what? He's doing this 24-7. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. But do you want to invite him to sit at the table? Do you want to give him a foothold? He's already prowling anyway, right? So don't give him a foothold. And the reason why he will not quit is that Satan hates marriage. The reason he hates marriage is because Jesus, uh, God ordained and instituted marriage as the unique illustration of Jesus' love for the church. And he hates the church. And so he's going to go after the illustration of the church. This is why, by the way, resignation to the same old won't work. It won't stay the same, you see. Because if you invite him to the table, things are going to get worse. So that's a negative reason. 
positive reason. What's the positive reason? The positive reason is our freedom. Like in the case of all the commandments of God. He commands us certain things so that we will experience freedom. Let me just give you a few illustrations of the shape that this freedom might take for each of these rights. Let's talk about dignity rights for a minute. Back in the 1970s, there was a famous uh, black evangelist named Tom Skinner. <coughs> Very quickly after he became converted from a uh, New York gang, I think it was, <coughs> he was playing in a football game and he tackled a defensive lineman who happened to be white. Well, when he was going back to the huddle, this guy hurled a racial slur at him, punched him in the stomach, hacked him on his neck while he was bent over and kicked him when he fell to the ground. Skinner got up and while walking back to the huddle said, listen, I love you because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. At the end of the game, this white guy went over to him and said, that did more to knock out racial prejudice from me than any punch you could have given to me. Tell me, when was Tom Skinner more free? If, when he would have been able to punch this guy out as he was well able to, he was much stronger than him, or when he was able to refrain and control his anger. How about property rights? When, when was our friend, the vacuum cleaner friend, more free? Free to have, when she would have been able to let this neighbor have her peace of her mind at the very beginning, or free after that nine months of learning to wait to experience God? And going back to my humble experience on that Thursday morning, when, when would I have been more free? Free when I expressed my irritation and walked over mumbling and grumbling and reluctantly did it? Or, if while I was walking over, remembering what Jesus said and wanting to be like Jesus, I would have said, oh, after she comes back, what can I ask for her to do more? <laughs> you can tell. I would have been so much freer and would have enjoyed what I was doing so much more than fretting and fuming and murmuring. And, and, and when it comes to the issue of legal rights, I read something very interesting. It doesn't happen all the time. But lawyers, apparently, given a choice, would rather work with meek and gentle people, especially when conflicts are involved, than those pushy, greedy types as well. As often as this happens, it's an illustration of what Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. But above all, more than anything else, remember, this freedom comes. The reward, the inheritance of the earth is in progressive Christ-likeness. Because that's the whole point. We are becoming more and more like Jesus. We are being angry with the right person for the right reason, for the right amount of time. We're learning to turn the other cheek when our rights are violated. We are learning to walk in freedom because that's what Jesus said. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He lifts the weight in a marriage. And rest comes into our marriages when it comes to, and other key relationships when it comes to dealing with violated rights. Alright, as we finish this series, as we finish this sermon, I want to do exactly what I've done in every other case. I want to suggest a Trump Tracks for another spiritual conversation. This one's called a what-if conversation. Several years ago, I ran across this uh, article in a magazine called Marriage, written by a wife, and this is what she said. She said, my husband and I like to play what-if. We sit and toss out ideas. What if we moved out of the state? What if we enclosed our porch? What if we got a dog? 
Some of the what-ifs come to fruition, others don't. And this is the key. But we found that the very process airs out our marriage. You like the phrase? Airing out, getting rid of the stale air of resignation, letting a fresh wind of vitality move. And that's what it says. These conversations air out our marriages, opens doors and windows of possibility, draws us closer. There's intimacy. It's not an idle exercise to dream. Oh, this is what we've been doing. The reason why we unpack biblical foundations for marriage in the three sermons is to build a picture of biblical ideals, the biblical dream. It doesn't matter if it only looks like a dream at this point. It's valuable because it cracks open the door to start things happening. So, have a what-if conversation this week. What if we threw out the self-centered expectations we brought into marriage? What if we pursued a relationship with a single or vice versa? What if we clarified our mission together? What if we had regular spiritual conversations? What if we asked the Spirit each day to fill us and magnify the beauty of Jesus? What if we keep asking the humble and meek Jesus to teach us humility and meekness? (laughs) And what if we never quit no matter how long it takes? What fresh wind might blow into your marriage? through that. One of my favorite quotations of marriage just about sums up this whole series. His name was Elton Trueblood. He was once president of Wheaton College and he said this. Marriage is not the system in which two people perfectly suited for one another find each other and then because of this initial matching have a successful marriage. Rather, marriage is a system in which two sinful people are caught up by a vision so much bigger than themselves that in spite of repeated disappointments, they keep working to translate that vision into reality. Have the worship team join us at the front as I lead you in prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege for these four weeks to be with these people whom I've learned to love. Thank you for the church of Jesus and what an unbelievable privilege it is to share the things that are upon my heart and our hearts. And Father, the prayer that I want to pray more than anything else is that the cumulative effect of these last four weeks has been the painting of a vision. And I pray that it will be so powerful because it is divine. It is your idea, not human. That will churn up such a powerful wake that will just suck and draw us into that. And it will create a whole new thirst for us and say, this is what I want to be, Jesus. Will you let me take the first step? Help me to walk on water. And help me to find that the water doesn't give way. Because you are there with me. In Jesus' name. Amen.